Hello, everybody. I'm Phil Brandt, President and CEO of AIM Employers Association, and welcome to This Week at Work. This Week at Work is the only show about the workplace that offers you front row seats and a microphone featuring experts in human resources and employment law to bring you practical, timely, and accurate insights so you can more effectively lead your organization. It's Thursday, September 14th, episode 248. Today, current DEI practices will never work because they are fundamentally wrong. What sounds like a provocative statement from DEI consultant and TEDx speaker Fred Falker is more of a battle cry for those who really want inclusion in the workplace to join forces and march right through the interference that is on the front line holding our employees back. For leaders who feel they're trapped, fighting against the pressures and opponents of DEI initiatives, this thought leader is offering his hand because there's only one way out and he believes it's together. All this and more on This Week at Work. Bert, good morning and welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Phil. What in the world is that on my head? What What, what do you mean on your head? <laughs> uh, oh, look at that, Bert. What do you got? Is that, you got some... Uh, effects are you playing with your isn't he the birthday boy is what yes the rumor thank thank you there nick for uh making sure everybody's aware that it's my birthday today all right another uh 29 year celebration for you bert garland happy birthday (laughs) Uh, what we won't do is we won't sing for you on air we don't want people to to hear those um those nasty sounds coming across the the internet waves here uh, but happy birthday, Bert. We hope you have a great birthday. We're happy to have you back on the program. We have a fabulous guest, actually one of my business heroes. You know, you have a few people that you meet in uh, in your career who give you inspiration. They share insight and, and you aspire to be more like. And Fred Falker is just that person for me from the very first time I met him when he was uh, one of the top leaders at the St. Louis Zoo and doing some fantastic work uh, at one of the best zoos in the world. Um, and immediately after I met Fred, I was like, that guy's got something about him. And I didn't know much about him at that time, but he had that that factor that we call, you know, that it factor. And as I got to know Fred over the years and watch him work very slowly, very methodically, uh, with a lot of persistence, uh, and then I started to meet Fred more frequently and he spoke at our conference, and he spoke at our summit, and I listened to his message, and most recently, I ran into him again at the Missouri Sherm conference, and we just had a hallway conversation, and I walked away again going, gosh, I would, I'd like to be as wise as someone we call G-Dude, right, and his grandkids call him G-Dude, it's a cool name, um, it's not Pops, it's not Granddad, it's not Grandpa, but it's G-Dude. So G-Dude, Fred Falker, TEDx speaker, welcome back to the program. We're happy to have you on with us today. Thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you, Phil. Great. Uh, Fred, we're going to get right back to you. We got a lawyer on the clock segment here from Burt Garland, and he's going to get us caught up on all the most recent updates. And then we're going to get right on to our program with you, Fred. So Burt, are you ready for, let me introduce before you remind me. I was uh, about to get questions. (laughs) <laughs> yep. You were going to do it. I know. I, I, I ought to just waiting. give you the poll question introductions. All right. So we got a couple good questions centered around today's topic. Uh, first is, does your organization have a formal 
DEI program. So is it a formal program? Yes or no? Uh, you can tell us a little bit about it if you do or don't and why. Um, and then the second question is, and I like this question, Nick, you do such a good job, is when you hear the words diversity, equity, or inclusion, what is the first word that comes to your mind? And so I've been thinking about this one. Um, and I think the first word that comes to mind for me, um, it's a, it's a, it's difficult to explain. You got to be careful, but I think I get frustrated. I just think, I think my first word is frustrated because I think I'm still going along the journey to understand exactly what it means. And when I talk with other people, I find that we're in very different places and that starts to create frustration for me um, when their opinions are different than mine, which is why I put this up here, this Sunday reflection, which says it's OK if we have different opinions. And that is what I don't find when I talk to people about diversity, equity, inclusion is most people frustrate me because they're not OK that our opinions are different. And I seem to be okay if our opinions are different. It's just our opinions, and, and that's what it is, uh, as long as they're not harm, harmful in some way. So that's my word, is frustrated. I hope everyone understands that appropriately. Um, with that, Bert, let's kick off Lawyer on the Clock. Are you ready? I'm ready, Phil. All right, Lawyer. All right, it's time to look into what's trending in employment law. Lawyer, you're on the clock. All right. And so we are all aware that uh, yesterday the most recent inflation data came out that shows that inflation, while still at a very high rate, ticked up a little bit again uh, last month, a little more than expected. And the only reason I'm bringing that up is because uh, the, uh, the, the unions may be about to heap a little bit more onto the economy's burden here as the three, uh, the Uni United Auto Workers Union prepares targeted strikes as deal talks with the three major automakers have stalled. Uh, the union officials have said they're still very, very far apart on their key priorities. The UAW uh, at these three auto workers, auto manufacturers represent 150,000 members, and they said that they're prepared to strike these companies in a way they have never seen before. So sounds pretty ominous. They're still very far apart on key issues including pay raises, cost of living adjustments, pensions, and job security at certain factories. The union has lowered its pay demand from 40% increase over the uh, course of the entire uh, contract. Uh, which or, I mean, just, just take that in for a minute. 40% request a 40% increase. That yep. Now, I, I, I get... You, you have to negotiate when you have leverage. And, and I realize, you know, the automakers feel that there's leverage right now and probably is on uh, many different levels. But 40% just really appears uh, to be an unreasonable request. I've never had that kind of request in any of my days negotiating union contracts. Have you? Yeah, it's no, not even close to that. And, and if you compound the, uh, the, the wage increases that they're seeking, the 40% is actually 46% over the course of the uh, entire contract. Now, what's interesting is, is that uh, Ford has apparently uh, proposed 20% raises over four years, while GM offered 18% and Stellantis offered 17.5%. So uh, they're, they're definitely going to be getting significant raises, but they're, uh, they're, they're still where the automakers are, are at about half of what the union is uh, still seeking. 
Yeah. And I know sometimes in negotiation, my experience also tells me, you know, they, they're what they first come out with, I might anticipate, you know, a third or a half of that as a as a reasonable place to settle in. And it, it sounds like they're not far off from half of the original request. Well, no, no, no. Make sure you understand the original request was 40%, which comes to 46% once raises are compounded. The unions only come down from 40% to 36%. So yeah, but the companies have already done 17 and what do you say, 20? 20, 18, and 17 and a half. Yeah. So there my point is that the companies are already moving towards that halfway mark um to, to meet them there. Yeah. 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 I they're they're still an ocean apart as far as I'm concerned. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens there. So uh so that'll be a blow to the economy either way. Uh, because if those wages go up by that much, that's going to eventually flow through uh, to to uh, the cost of new cars. Or if there's a strike, that'll be an additional burden uh, on the economy. Um, another one that we need to keep our eye on, and uh, in light of the technical difficulties this morning, I'll probably come back and talk about this in more detail down the road. But everybody should be aware that the Department of Labor I've been off the last couple of weeks from the program, but the Department of Labor has proposed substantial increases to the salary threshold for uh, white collar exemptions. And Phil, I don't know, have you guys been able to talk about this on the program uh, when I've been off the last two weeks? No, we have not. Okay, so everybody needs to be aware that uh, the Department of Labor has proposed raising the weekly salary by over 50% uh, from $684 per week to $1,059 per week. That's the equivalent of $55,068. They are also seeking to increase the annualized salary threshold for the exemption for highly compensated employees from $107,432 to $143,988. So this is a very, very, very mm. significant uh, bump here. In particular, I think the one that, that most people would be concerned about is if you have managers, uh, supervisors, uh, white collar employees who are making right now more than $35,568 per year, but making less than 55068 And realistically, I think that that 55068 number, if this... Uh, goes into effect next year is probably going to be closer to $60,000. So if you have employees who are making, uh, like I said before, $35,568 per year and probably less than $60,000 per year, you're going to have to look very uh, strongly at their compensation to see if you can bump them above the new salary threshold to keep them exempt. If you cannot keep them exempt, um, then you are going to have to uh, make them hourly employees. And that means that they're entitled to minimum wage, which wouldn't be a problem there, but then they'd be entitled to overtime. So uh, very, very big news coming out of the Department of Labor. The uh, Department of Labor issued uh, 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 its notice of proposed rulemaking, which means that they're seeking comments from employers on this and from other stakeholders, individuals from around the country. And uh, we don't know the exact timeline on this, but I would not be surprised if this uh, uh, rulemaking, if it follows a similar path to past increases, 
I would, I would expect that the final rule would come into effect around the middle of next year. So everybody needs to keep this on their radar. Yeah, just, uh, just times are changing, right? And this is why it's important that we do have good compensation strategies and we have good um, practices as it relates to you know our exempt and, and non-exempt personnel, really as it relates not just to their salary, but their job duties as well, because that all comes into play. Yep. But times are definitely changing, are they not, Bert? They are. And uh, yeah. again, all of this you know contributes to the inflationary pressures on the economy. So we'll yeah. see what shakes out. Very good. Anything else from you there, lawyer? Oh, there's plenty, but we'll uh, we'll move on with the rest of the program. How about that? All right, that's great. Thank you very much, Bert, for that. We appreciate it. Fred Falker, we're going to turn our attention to you. Um, and if I uh, understood our introduction the right way, you've made a pretty bold statement uh, when you say that current DE&I practices will, will never work because they are fundamentally wrong. So first, let's just fact check. Is that a statement you've made, uh, Fred? And if so, can you help us understand what you mean by that statement? Sure. It's a, it's a statement, Phil, that I make all the times. And, and I guess it really does depend on what you mean by work. There's certainly an awful lot of people who are working awfully hard in the field who believe that, that they are making progress. There, there are people who are not in the field but are impacted by the field who don't want to see any of that progress. And then there's a whole group of other employees and executives that are confused by it. What I think is really critical and what I really want to imply to people who hear that statement is that last year it's uh, it's thought that about $8 billion was spent on DEI programs. And so when you say that progress is being made a little here and a little there, and I don't think anybody would debate that, but that you're getting pushed back over here and over there, then I think we would say as uh, business people, it's not working. It's not doing what it's intended to do. It's not doing what it's what is it's needed to 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 do. So to that extent, it's not working, and it can't ever work simply because it's not getting enough buy-in. It's not getting enough people who are willing to be part of the change effort. If you want to change the culture, then you have to have people in the organization who are willing to change, not be changed. One of the things I think is really important, I'll try to be brief here, is that inside organizations that have programs and that have run them for a while, you'll typically find four groups of employees. Uh, they are the frustrated employees. They are the angry employees. They are, they are the ambivalent employees. And they are the weary employees. The frustrated are people who, in many cases, are putting in an awful lot of effort, very intense. They are the choir. They are the believers. They have strong, powerful whys. And to some extent, they are right in the change that's needed. But that's a very small group. They are the people who are pushing it. Their frustration is that change is not happening quick enough. The ambivalent are people who are largely supportive of these efforts. They want things to be different. They think things should be different, but you know, they've got lives. This is not their only thing that matters. They've got kids in school. They're looking for their own promotion. It is wrong to say that they are against these efforts. They're not. They're just not all in because they are all in about other things that matter. 
you've got the weary and frankly the wearier people are just tired of hearing about it all the times in their minds everything can't be about d e and i it simply can't be you've got some percentage of people who are angry but that is a small percentage the problem is that you've got a small group of people who are frustrated a small group of people who are angry but most of the people probably 70 80 percent in most organizations are in the middle they are bystanders you need for culture to change, you need the behavior of people to change. And if we don't buy it, if we don't have a strong enough why, regardless of the reason, we won't make that change. And the frustration is real. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, a great way of breaking it down and having it in those, in those four groups. Now, you made a comment I would just want to explore um, here. You said those people, those leaders who are um, willing to change not willing to be changed. I, I think it was a comment that you made. Um, I don't, can you explain that a little bit? What What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, part of the reason if we think about organizational culture, we've got to inspire people to change their behavior. Unfortunately, much of what goes on in the DEI world is kind of a, not, not I would say a requirement that you change, the uh, uh, pressure to change, uh, and people fight that. Sometimes the people that are fighting that are not enemies to what you propose. They are really enemies to what's being being done. And so the frustration comes in. You're going to tell me how to do this and that when the truth is in order to have an inclusive environment, people have to say this is important to us. And what's important is that we find a place where we believe that our lives are being enriched. We find a place where we are, where we can say that we feel that we belong, that this is a great place to be, a great place to work. In my mind, the work that we should be doing is, is, is not the work of saying the place is fair and equitable and professional. It is something well above that the place that where you feel that you belong is a place that is special when you look at culture do you want to have a culture where most people say it's pretty good around here or do you want to have a culture where people start saying this is a great place to work when we look at inclusion we really have to start thinking about okay pretty good not bad is not nearly good enough you think about it in terms of engagement those are the folks who are saying sort of kind of maybe a little bit engaged as opposed to those top line people that say this is a great place to be yeah that and that, there's a big difference between pretty good or it's a nice place to work to this is a great place to work it, you know it's i uh i worked with one uh organization and what they wanted they they called it their love score you know they wanted people to use the word love they were like yeah. I love working here. I love my customers. I love my coworkers. It, and it was an, an expression beyond good, right? That's a huge, huge difference, huge change. It requires leaders to be different, but it requires people in that organization to start saying, hey, we care about each other. Right. We are working in a place that matters to us. What I personally do is important to our customers, to other people in this organization. I have a sense that I belong. I, I feel like I'm an owner. I, I am allowed to grow and develop and contribute. If you think about ownership, it is above and beyond doing what 
I get paid to do. It is my extra contribution. When I'm owning something, it's because I'm putting something into it. Obviously, it's a place where we feel psychologically safe. If we believe in what we're doing as an organization, whether it's our products or our services or what we're doing to make our community a better place, when you have that, then you have a you you have a responsible way of looking at inclusion. Inclusion is not having a seat at the table. Inclusion is not representation. Inclusion is how employees feel about an organization. It is a condition. It is not something that we can will into existence. It's something that, frankly, organizations have to work toward. They have to work hard at it, but it requires that employees say, I want to be part of this culture. And the truth is, when we get it right, employees do want to be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's a um, a great lead into this next question. And if I... If, Working with employers every day, and you you do some fantastic work with employers uh, every day as well. Um, what I find is that leadership is feeling a different set of pressures, right? Uh, there's a, a small portion that are frustrated, as you mentioned. There's others that are angry. There's others that are ambivalent, as you mentioned. Um, what is it that the leaders um, are feeling to um, move their organization forward. This is, you know, HR leaders, the C-suite, they're under pressure to do something. Absolutely. And I'm going to use this uh, as a lead way. I want to look at the scorecard uh, from our survey here real quick, Nick, if you can pull that up. So does your organization, remember the question that I asked you now, but does your organization have a formal DE&I program? And I'm going to pull out that 46.6% of our listeners here today are saying, no, we have no plans to pursue one. Um, and so the pressure there has led me to no. I'm not going to do anything um, as far as having a formal program. Formal was the key question in yeah. that. Can you talk to us a little bit about the pressures and how maybe to consider looking at them? Well, I think certainly the the pressures are how how do we create a positive, better organizational culture? For 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 me, inclusion is the absolute big word. What are what are we doing to build a culture of inclusion? inside of inclusion i put the diversity part i put that inside of inclusion because that's the kind of for many people that's the kind of organization that you want to work for but inclusion is the big thing if everybody is not winning if everybody is not a winner then you mm. won't get to inclusion so it, it it will not work to the extent that some employees feel that they will lose the, the pressure on senior leadership is that we, there are forces saying that we must do something, and then there are other forces saying you shouldn't be doing any of that. So that the compromise in many cases is is having a program that, sadly, in many cases, is not producing great results. The biggest thing I believe about the field right now is that many people who are not doing much or not doing it because they don't hear about the great successes. I, I, being in the field, but not of the field, believe that to when we start producing outcomes, 
when we start producing outcomes, then these programs will be strengthened. We'll start producing outcomes when you get people to buy into the idea that we're doing something together, something that can be extraordinary. You mentioned that love quotient, whatever you want to call it. It is a it is a special place. If you think about engagement surveys, you don't want to be that 50%, 30% company. You don't want to be in the middle. You want to be able to say to people, this is again, this is not an okay place to work. This is a yeah. this is a great place to work. This is a wow place to be. And you do that by by having an, a culture where people feel that they belong. And that means everybody. That's not including some people and having others feel left out. Part of the reason that DEI will not work is because it divides, unfortunately, people when it absolutely should not be doing that. And there's no reason for it to do that. So when and when I'm talking with leaders, uh, I'd, I'd be curious in your experience, um, and if I consider that 46% said, no, we don't have a program and we don't plan to have one. And my interpretation of some of that population is I don't want to do it because it creates more problems for me than I have today. And, and I interpret that as I'm not equipped and I don't really know what to do. And I don't believe that I can make an impact that's worth the investment. That, that's really what I'm interpreting from the leaders when they're saying that. Um, what's, what's your interpretation to that? But what would you give, what would be your the process of considering to per make purposeful change in their workplace? I think the last thing that you said is the thing that makes the most sense. It is to make purposeful change. And if you're making purposeful change, then the labels that we attach to it become less important. For some people, calling anything, talking about D-E-N-I or D-E-I-B or all of the various labels that get attached to it, that's poison already. This idea is that we want an inclusive culture, a culture that that gives people a sense of belonging. We want people in our organization that add value to our organization. We want to be a organization that is contributing to the health welfare of this community. When you think of it like that, as opposed to a label, as opposed to a program, as then it's easy to say we don't have a program. But do you have a culture? that includes people? Do you have a culture where people feel that they belong? Do you have a culture that you could credibly say is a fair culture? Do you have that? To the extent that you have that, then you don't have to call your program anything. I'm not opposed to calling it something, but it has to be bigger than a quote program. If this is not an effort to make your organization different, if it's on a, another track, if it's not part of the senior leadership's charge, then it's not likely to work. In my experience, when you uh, put something off in a corner and give it a name and senior leadership doesn't say we are responsible for this, then it is likely not to work. Uh, my advice is always that the senior leaders commit and say, we're responsible for the numbers. We're not running what happens, but this is on our plate of big, big things to do. 
And there's only three or four or five of those things. But having a great culture is one of those things. And we're going to monitor it. We're going to do what's necessary. We're going to bring in the talent to help us get that done. But we're going to be really clear about we are taking responsibility when we make this commitment. We're not going to put it on Fred or Phil or Mary or Kate and say it's your job. It, it, it would be like having a safety director or and saying that he or she was responsible for safety. No responsible leaders in an organization would do that. And we shouldn't be doing that with inclusion either. It is. Yeah, that is a great, that's a good, a good way to put it because most business leaders will stand up and say, I'm responsible for safety in our workplace. Absolutely. I, I mean, excuse me, that's a, a great way of putting that. All right, Fred, one closing thought if you could share a message, um, any message you want to share, what to do, what not to do, a success tip anything at all that you could just share with our audience. It's wide open. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. What You got one minute left here. What would you share with the audience? Uh, I would share that any work that you do that keeps people apart, separates them into groups, is is doomed to fail. That, that this effort has to be about creating better relationships inside an organization between people. If your leaders go through a program like this or and you're thinking about how do you bring in developmental efforts, they all have to be consistent. When I worked with AIM as part of the San Jose, we wanted to make sure that everything that we did always reinforced other things. So leaders didn't learn this and this and as in separate packets. Instead, they learned how to be better leaders. I believe strongly that leaders should know what to do. They should know when to do it, and they should be able to do it. And if, you're, if, if your efforts aren't leading there, you're creating more confusion and more doubt. Know what to do, know when to do it, and be able to do it. And then if you give them a strong enough why, and the why is about the kind of place that we want to be in and the kind of leader I want to be in. Most leaders are not saying to themselves, I want to exclude people, but exclusion is not the big enemy of inclusion. It's failing to include people. That's something that leaders can learn. Who are the yeah. people right now that I treat? Okay, that is simply not good enough. I treat some people really well. Can I get myself to the place where I'm in being an inclusive leader? My employees, the vast majority of them can look up and say, this person is a great leader. When I think about leadership, I think about that person. Not feel afraid is okay. And just like we say how we want the organization and culture to be, we want leaders. You have to have leaders where people say, wow, she's wonderful. She is outstanding. I mean, she's she knows us. We know her. She gets the work done. We love working. I do extra working for her. That yeah, is how that we is get there. That is exactly it there, Fred. Uh, this is why I look up to you so much. Uh, I think you have lots of wisdom. I hope to work yet with you for many years here at AIM and in your ventures. How do people get in touch with you, Fred? What's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, the best way is through my email, which is fred.falker at falkerconsulting.group. All right. 
Very good. If you have any questions or uh, hard times reaching Fred, you can always reach out to us here at AIM and we'll put you in touch with him. Fred, thank you again for being on our program. I think this is our second or third time. I hope to have you back again today. Good luck uh, to you and all the things that you're doing, G-Dude, and we will be back on air next week at 7.30 Central Time. Nick, thank you for doing such a good job getting us back up on the air today. And until then, go out and be good to people. Bye-bye. Be good to people. Thank you once again for tuning in to This Week at Work. If you enjoy the show, please share it with your colleagues. Forward our invites. Share the link aimea.org forward slash this week at work or follow or subscribe wherever you get your news and entertainment like LinkedIn, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're everywhere you are. And you can be part of the show. Send your questions and comments anytime to info at thisweek.work. We'll see you next week, 7.30 a.m. Central Time, when we discuss what's happening this week at work.